Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today we have our last message in our resurrection series called Convincing Proof. So let's turn in our Bibles to John 20 as we go to Dr. John Newfeld now. Cato tells the story of a Japanese man named Shoikoi Yokoi. Shoikoi Yokoi spent 28 years in a prison, not a prison of walls, but a self-imposed prison of fear. Oh, he would have told you that he had reasons to remain in that prison, but he was wrong. Here's his story. Shoikoi Yokoi was a Japanese soldier fighting against the Americans in the Second World War. When the tide of war turned against the Japanese, he had been stationed on the island of Guam. He was afraid that he would be captured by the Americans. He had heard how they tortured their prisoners, and so he ran deep into the jungle and hid in a cave. He heard about the end of the war from one of the leaflets that were dropped over the jungle by the American planes. So the war was over and the Japanese had been defeated, but still he feared what it would mean for him if he were taken a prisoner, so he decided to remain in his cave. Shoikoi survived by eating frogs and rats and roaches and mangoes. He lived off whatever nature provided. He was not going to be captured and he was not going to die in the jungle. And so for 28 years, Shoikoi wasted his life pacing up and down his self-made prison of fear, watching for the encroaching enemy, taking every precaution not to be seen, assuring himself that he was going to survive while not giving up. It was only when some hunters discovered him that they convinced him to leave the jungle. What a wasted life. Max Licato writes, The fear of death has filled a thousand prisons. You can't see the walls. You can't see the warden. You can't see the locks. But you can see the prisoners. You can see them as they sit on their bunks and bemoan their fate. They want to live, but they can't because they're doomed to do what they most want to avoid. They will die. You know, but Easter is the announcement that the war with death is over. 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ of Nazareth defeated the greatest enemy that has ever plagued humanity. The problem is that there are so many who simply will not believe. They prefer to stay in their caves and allow their lives to be filled with fear, hopelessness, and a frantic attempt to delay death as long as possible. We fear the word cancer, the word terminal, The words, there's nothing that can be done for you. We try to delay aging. We try to tell ourselves that we have a long time to live. I notice that there is now a growing cryonics industry as some individuals look for the keys to extend their lives by many hundreds of years. But haven't you heard? Death has already been defeated. Are you unsure? For those who are afraid that this account of the resurrection of Jesus might not be true, let me offer seven pieces of evidence that should be considered. The first piece of evidence is the evidence of the empty tomb. It needs to be said at the outset that the the death of Jesus devastated his followers. It washed him right into Jerusalem only a week earlier, convinced that, that he would defeat Rome and set up his throne in Jerusalem where he would rule the world. And five days later, they watched him cruelly tortured and killed on a, on a Roman cross. All hope that they had that this was the Messiah seems to have been crushed. The dead and lifeless and abused body of Jesus of Nazareth was dragged down off the cross and wrapped in linen cloths and laid into a tomb. You know, the disciples were like groups of people that we have heard of today 
who believed that the end of the world would come on a given day, only to find out that the next day arrived and life went on as before. It was late Saturday evening when a group of three women, Mary Magdalene, Mary the wife of James and Salome, went back to the tomb where they had seen Christ's body laid on Friday at sundown. It was late, and by the time they arrived at the tomb, Mark 16, verse 2 tells us that the tip of the sun of the next day had actually appeared on the horizon. But something remarkably had already happened before they got there. Matthew 28, verses 2 to 4 says, There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and, going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The earthquake was probably not very extensive. The women don't seem to have noticed. It doesn't seem to have damaged anything in Jerusalem. But the earthquake broke the seal that was placed on the stone, and the stone had rolled down a slanted groove. The tomb lay open with the guards lying on the ground. The women approached completely amazed by what they were seeing. The corpse of Jesus was gone. Stone was open. The guards were laying unconscious before the empty tomb. I think the women must have had to step over the bodies lying on the ground in order to enter into the tomb. And in Luke 24, verses 4 to 6, Luke describes what happened next. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. See, what follows is interesting to say the least. The story was undoubtedly so fantastic that the women had some difficulty telling it the way it happened. You know, I remember many years ago, then U.S. President Jimmy Carter told reporters a story about how he had gone canoeing and that a rabbit had swam up to his canoe and attached itself to it, and he had to fight it off with his paddle. Everyone laughed at him. I remember thinking then, you know, if that had happened to me, I don't think I'd have told anyone about it. You know, in a very real way, that's what happened to the women. They are not guilty of exaggeration. If anything, they were guilty of refusing to tell this amazing story, lest someone think that they were crazy. And John 20 verse 2 tells us what Mary Magdalene said. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. And that's the first piece of evidence. The tomb was empty. I mean, where did the body go? The amazing thing about the Christian faith is that there is no burial place of its founder. All great men and women of history have tombs, but Jesus has none. Nobody is left behind, only an empty tomb. Has death been defeated? Well, let's look now at the second piece of evidence. It's the evidence of the untouched grave clause. John 20, verses 6 to 7 says, Then Simon Peter came following him and and went to the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. You know, after being told that the tomb was empty, both Peter and John ran to the tomb, and and John arrived first because he was younger and he was a faster runner. But when he got there, all he did was stand at the entrance of the tomb. It, It must have been amazing. No doubt the soldiers were gone by then. There was no guard anymore. 
An open door was all that greeted him, and, and I have no doubt that he just stood there and he stared at the open tomb. He had no idea what to make of this, and he was afraid to go inside. Peter got there and he went inside, and John followed and found him inside the tomb looking intently at the winding sheet. Bodies would have been wrapped with long sheets of cloth, and, and they were placed on a stone ledge, and the entire body would have been wrapped up very tightly. Uh, but Peter noticed something that was curious. Instead of finding the grave cloths spread out in a jumbled heap, it was still wrapped together in one spot. On top of that, the long kerchief that would have been wound around his head was not unwound and tossed aside, but it was also wrapped together and lying right there above the other wrapping. In other words, no one had removed the grave cloths in the normal manner. It was as if the body had simply passed right through the, the head cloth and the shroud and left the, the cloths empty. And as the two men were staring at this amazing sight, several thoughts must have dawned on them. First of all, this could not have been the work of grave robbers. They would have stripped the body completely, leaving everything in a heap, or they would have taken the body and the grave clothes and all. A close examination showed that it seemed as if the body had simply left the tomb and left the grave claws on its way out, passing right through the layers of cloth without unwrapping them at all. And John came to a conclusion right there that morning, standing inside the empty tomb. Death had been unable to claim the victim. Death had lost its grip. Somehow, and, and he could not understand how, but somehow Jesus had conquered death and he was right now alive. Well, those are the first two pieces of evidence on Easter Sunday, and they are powerful pieces of evidence in and of themselves. An empty tomb and a most interesting arrangement of burial claws. But now comes the most startling piece of evidence. It's that third piece of evidence, the evidence of the personal eyewitness encounters of Jesus that ultimately are the, the fascinating thing that, that draws us back. You know, stay with me. We're going to continue to discuss what it is that people actually saw when they said they saw the raised body of Jesus. We hope you're enjoying Dr. Neufeld's new Easter series entitled The Resurrection. This series should encourage every follower of Jesus that the time will come when we will reap the ultimate benefit of our faith in Christ. When the Easter story, Jesus' sacrifice, death, his resurrection will be fully known. So make sure to join us every weekday, understanding the full implications of the Father's provision for you. And if you miss a message, remember you can catch up online or to ensure you never miss again, sign up for our daily podcast, mobile app, or audio mail sent to your inbox every weekday. All of these opportunities and so many other resources are available at backtothebible.ca or by calling 1-800-663-2425. And please remember, all that is accomplished in the teaching of the Bible is in partnership with our listeners across Canada. Your gifts, your prayers every month make this possible. The evidence of the eyewitnesses of Jesus' resurrection really is quite compelling. For some reason, Peter and John had not realized that Mary Magdalene had followed them. Maybe she got there later investigating the scene again. I mean, after all, how could she stay away? 
Mary had loved Jesus. Jesus had cast seven demons out of her. She had accompanied Jesus along with the disciples in his ministry. She had watched as Jesus was crucified. Now, this grave scene is amazing. What was the answer to this? And John tells us what happened next. I'm reading John 20, verses 11 to 16. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. You know, this is the first encounter that anyone had with Jesus after his death. It's the encounter of a woman who had already seen an angel but is not sure what it is that she's seen. Now she has seen an empty tomb and she simply begins to weep. The problem with death is that when it happens, it simply drains away your joy. It is final. You can't argue with death. It claims its victims and does not care how you feel or how much you love or how you'd like to change things. Death makes no deals with us. Death cares little for us. Death simply robs us and never repays us. Death is loss. It would seem that the stories of empty tombs and strange configurations of grave claws was not enough for Mary. She might have said, you can believe what you want. And when you're standing beside a tomb, you'll believe in death. And she began to cry. There were two angels there, but even that, even angels, even signs from heaven, none of this takes away the sting and the finality and the ugliness of death. And then the remarkable. Jesus is standing right there, but she doesn't see him. She sees a gardener until he says her name, Mary. That's how he always said her name. And that one word, that one mention of her name made her whole being leap to life. Some of you have heard of the account that apparently took place in a Russian Orthodox church during the beginning of the communist era. Churches were being shut down. People were being told that that religion was the opiate of the people. There was nothing other than the product of random choices of nature, the fluke of evolution. Atheism was all that was left. But this Orthodox church in Moscow was still open. But on Easter Sunday morning, the communists were coming to church. They informed the priest that they would present a lengthy lecture on atheism that Sunday morning. It was Easter. And they did. Not only did they tell of atheism, but also they warned of the foolishness of belief. And after they were done, they allowed the priest a five-minute rebuttal. Well, he didn't need five minutes. In fact, he didn't even need one. He simply declared a three-word sentence. He is risen. And that packed church roared back, He is risen indeed. And that's Easter. It's the evidence of the empty tomb, of untouched grave cloths, and of personal eyewitness encounters. This is not a philosophical discussion about the existence of God and the the reality of the meaning of death. We're not Christians because we're smarter than others or we figured out more about God than others. We are Christians because Christ has risen. This is a faith based upon a personal encounter with a risen Jesus but there is more. The fourth bit of evidence is the evidence of an afternoon spent with Jesus. 
It's not just that a few people saw Jesus like, you know, like an Elvis sighting around Nashville or Memphis. No, there was more. Luke 24, verses 13 to 35, tells another amazing story. By now, Mary and Peter claimed to have seen Jesus alive, but the next account was amazing. Two minor disciples were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were walking with a stranger who taught them the Bible. He began with Moses and the prophets and showed them that the Messiah had to suffer. The eyewitness accounts are now growing. It's not just one person. It's not just an empty tomb, strange burial cloth, a chance encounter here and there. No, there are two who spent an entire afternoon with him. Oh, it was a strange encounter to be sure. They hadn't recognized him all afternoon, but towards evening, it's as if the scales fell from their eyes and it was Jesus. And then he was gone. There's a bit of evidence here that should not be passed over. Jesus had been showing them from the scripture that he had to suffer many things and then rise from the dead. And here now is the fifth piece of evidence. It's the evidence of the fulfillment of prophecy. See, we can't say for certain which scripture Jesus taught these two disciples on that road to Emmaus. I would have loved to have been there. We do know, however, that from the very beginnings of the Bible, there are statements about the sufferings of Christ. For instance, Genesis 3 verse 15 tells us that a great deliverer of the human race will be struck. The sacrificial system of the law tells us the need for blood to be spilt for the human race. I am sure that Jesus would have taken them to Isaiah 53 that day and the prophecy of the suffering of the servant. But also he must have told them also that he will prolong his days. One thing is certain, long before Jesus arrived as a baby, prophets had already foretold his life, his death, and his resurrection. So let's consider the evidence. An empty tomb, strange grave cloths, personal eyewitnesses, People claiming to spend an afternoon with him, being taught by him, and eating with him. And that should be enough, but some of it takes more. In John 20, verse 24 to 29, we have that encounter that Thomas had with Jesus. Thomas had not believed, and Jesus invites him to put his finger into the nail marks in his hands and to place his hand into his side and feel where the spear had sliced his side. We call this the sixth piece of evidence, the evidence of the physical body of Jesus. It's not just that others saw him. It was that they examined him. The disciples were hard realists, and they needed convincing proof, and they got it. Is that all the evidence? Well, no, there is so much more we could talk about. We have had the empty tomb, the untouched grave claws, the the eyewitnesses, the afternoon that was spent with Jesus, the fulfillment of prophecy for thousands of years, the examined, physically raised body of Jesus— But I have still one more proof. The seventh piece of evidence is that of the church of Jesus Christ. The existence of the church is itself a genuine miracle. What explains the fact that after 2,000 years, it still exists? Now, I know you might say, but yes, a lot of religions last a long time. But remember that this faith was not founded upon a certain worldview or a certain set of teachings or a logical argument or even faith in one's heart. This faith was founded upon an historical event, the event of the empty tomb. The fact is that all of the disciples of Jesus, with the exception of John, died a martyr's death, and not one of them pulled back. Not one of them broke ranks. Don't you know that men do not die for that which they know to be untrue? 
I was speaking with a fellow pastor some time ago. He told me he was faithfully visiting and ministering to a dear dying woman. You know, my pastor friend told me that he had phoned the home and spoken with the woman's sister who was taking care of her in her dying days. My pastor friend had asked how it was that the dying woman was doing, and he was told that she's going downhill very quickly. And then my pastor friend told me that he could hear the dying woman speaking ever so quietly in the background. She said, no, I'm not. I'm going uphill quickly. See, was she merely deluded? It's the most important question that we can ask. Death is the great enemy of humanity. Every one of us lives with the notion that death always stalks us, it always haunts us, and we cannot escape. You know, some are terrified and some try to ignore it, but death will not be ignored. Easter morning gives us convincing proof that death has been defeated. But it's not enough to know that. We must identify with Christ. We must become one with him. We must surrender our lives to him. We must confess our sins, and we must invite Jesus to be our Lord and Savior. If you have not yet at this moment come to terms with Jesus, let me invite you on this Easter to pray the following prayer. Simply say, Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner and I know I'm going to die, but I know that Jesus Christ is Lord and I know that he rose from the dead. Jesus, today I believe that you died for me and I surrender my life into your hands. Would you take my hand and lead me all the way into eternity? I surrender to you, take my life, I'm yours. In Jesus' name, amen. John, thanks for today's message. It was, it was really an encouraging one to think about the risen Savior. Can you tell me, what is one of the things that you, uh, I don't know, think most about when the Easter season comes about? You know, because I've been a pastor so long, Ben, I, I can't help but think about all the years that I've done Easter services and, and think about the hope that I see in people. But I think what I remember most about the Easter services that I've conducted are those people that I remember that came to Christ. I, I remember once doing a Good Friday service where we simply talked about what it meant for Christ to die and then just talked about the gospel. And, and I, there was a Hispanic couple that were there and they had heard, I mean, they had heard about Jesus' death all of their lives, but they came forward and they said, we just never knew why he died. And now for the first time, we understand that he died for our sins and uh, we'd like to give our lives to Christ. So I remember stories like that, stories of conversion. I, I do remember also, I mean, some people just not being convinced, and those always fill me with some amount of tears. But I just remember more than anything just how victorious this time of the year really sounds. It is the most glorious time for believers. This is our time to shine. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. The Back to the Bible Canada-Israel experience is scheduled to return May of 2018. Backed by popular demand, we return to the Promised Land accompanied by Bible teacher Dr. John Newfeld, Laugh Again's own Phil Calloway, and very special musical guests. Your days will be filled with visiting incredible biblical locations such as King David City, the Jordan River, the Sea of Galilee, the Garden of Gethsemane, the Western Wall, and so many more. And several evenings will be spent in fellowship, teaching, laughter, worship, and a very special musical concert. 
Every detail is worked out for the best Israel experience you could imagine. So check out the details at backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425. We'll also be offering a Jordan extension for those that are interested. So register soon. And a reminder that all costs related to Back to the Bible Canada, vacation and tour events are met by the participants and no ministry funds are used for this purpose.